The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. So let's wrap up our time in 1 John. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there with me. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 13 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, there hopefully is one in the seat back in front of you. Um, if you need a Bible, you're welcome to take that one with you. Uh, and I would encourage, as I do most weeks, that you, you, you carry your Bible with you. If you have your own with you, bring it. Highlight stuff, make notes in it, uh, so that we can remember and we can become fluent in our Bibles. So let me read, and then we'll pray as we dive into the text this morning. 1 John five thirteen through 21. John writes these things to the church. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that anyone should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, I pray that we would once again come with a humility and reverence that your word demands of us and deserves from us as well. I thank you that in all that I've learned about you through these past several weeks, and I pray that there would be many things that we would have learned as we've gone through this letter together. So God, I ask that one last time as we dive into this letter from John, that you speak to us through these words. Open our ears to hear what you would say to us, Open our eyes to see you in these words. Open our hearts to allow you to shape us, to challenge us, to convict us of where we have believed false things, and most importantly, to allow you to remind us that you love us, that you are for us, and that we were created to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as we bring this letter to a close, now you may have noticed that many or most of the sermon titles that we have had have been something to do with no blank. We've said that John wants to stress to his readers two things, Christology and ethics, to have a right and high view of who Jesus is, and then to appropriately shape our lives around that. Now, John has told us many things that we can know through this letter, hence the sermon titles, And including today's text, here are a bunch of things that John says we can know. We can know that we know God. We can know that we are in God. That it's the last hour. We can know the truth. That Jesus is righteous. That we will be like Jesus. 
that Jesus came to take away sins, that Jesus is sinless, that we have passed out of death and into life, that no murderer has eternal life. We can know love. We can know that God abides in us. We can know the spirit of God. We can know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. We can know that we love God's children. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God answers prayer. We can know that we will not practice sin. We can know that we belong to God. We can know that the Son of God has come. We can know that the Son of God has given us understanding. And we can know Him who is true. That's a lot of things. All that's to say that that this letter is written to inspire confidence in those who follow Jesus. And in those who are exploring what it means to follow Jesus. I posted this quote on Twitter and Facebook this week. Dan Aiken says, Christianity is not a I hope so or an I think so faith. It is an I know so faith because of what has been revealed in the Bible and that, that it was given to us by God, a God who speaks and a God who speaks only truth. So this morning, as we come to the conclusion of our text, we'll dig into five concluding things that were listed up there that we can know and that we can know that we know from 1 John. And those five things are this. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God answers prayer. We can know victory over sin. We can know that we belong to God. And we can know what is true. So let's dive in. The first thing. We can know that we have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, six times in this letter from chapters 1 through 5, John has explicitly said, here's why I'm writing. We see it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 2, chapter 2, and chapter 2. And all of them seem to point to and come to sort of a culmination in this final here's why I'm writing point. And John Piper sums up all these reasons for writings like this. He says, summing up all these reasons for writing 1 John goes like this. John says, I'm writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst. And I want you to be rock-solid confident in your present position of eternal life as regenerate children of God, so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. He says, so at the heart of his reason for writing is the desire to help them, to help followers of Jesus, to help the church know that they are born again, that they now have new spiritual life, eternal life. Through this letter, John has told us repeatedly that it is possible to have eternal life, but yet still have doubts. Maybe some of you can identify with that, occasionally having doubts in our standing before God and in our faith. So John has made that concession. However, that's not what John wants for his churches or for those following Jesus. He wants us to know, and he wants us to know that we know that we can have this life in Jesus. So when our doubts creep in, as they often do, we can cling to John's teaching here. And I should say also, we ought to do this in community as well. Our faith is not an individual faith. When we're experiencing doubt, we need to have fellow journeyers around us that remind us of our hope in the gospel. In our student ministries, we've repeatedly used Hebrews 10.24 that says, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Because there are times in life when we cannot see God at work in our own lives. 
when it feels like we've been abandoned, when it feels like this whole thing is, is falling apart. And so at those times, we need the church to remind us of our hope in the gospel. So we have to be reminded of these things in community as well. We can know with full confidence that we have eternal life. The second thing is we can know that God answers prayer. 1 John 5, I'll read 14 through 17. And this is a confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God shall give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now there is sin that leads to death. Do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So out of our assurance of this eternal life and the right standing before God that comes through Jesus, we can also have confidence that our prayers will be answered. R.A. Torrey said this. He said that prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God has is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And since God can do anything, he says that prayer is omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, John has also talked about prayer back in chapter 3. As we mentioned, these are some kind of concluding thoughts. And in chapter 3, he said that God answers prayers when we are doing two things, uh, when we are keeping his commandments and doing the things that please him. So this, is again, ties into the, the love and obey that we've talked about several times through the letter. But here he adds a third thing, that we are to ask according to his will. Verse 14 shows us that. So we just need to ask, and the things that God wants, he will give us. This doesn't mean that, boy, it's rainy, uh, my convertible's in the shop, so God, I need a new car, and poof, new car, right? God is not a genie that grants our every wish, uh, but God wants to do things. God wants to work in us and through us. And so as we ask according to his will, he will do amazing things. I've heard this, asked, this question asked before. Imagine what God is waiting to do and longing to do if we would only ask him. Church, imagine that for us. What is God waiting and longing to do in and through Renfrew Baptist Church if we would only ask George Mueller also said about prayer that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's not twisting his cosmic arm, but rather it's laying hold to his willingness. So that said, I think we can probably recall an instance or two where we have prayed for things that, that maybe in our minds seemed like, this is a good thing I'm praying for. But they didn't come through. Our prayers didn't come to fruition. So what do we do with that? Now, we could spend an entire Sunday or maybe a few Sundays talking about specifically prayers that don't get answered, but especially prayer. But for this morning, uh, allow me to just leave us with a comment from Dan Aiken. He says, Therefore, nothing we ask for lies beyond the power of God, except which lies beyond the power of his will, his purpose, and his plan. He says, We might ask why anyone would want anything contrary to God's will. It is right to pray according to God's will, and it is wise to pray according to God's will. He knows what is best, and he wants what is best. 
his glory and our good. That's what God wants. He says that God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I'll read that phrase again because there's a lot in there. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I like that. The second part of this section talks about a sin that, that doesn't lead to death and a sin that does lead to death and extra, it actually instructs us not to pray around the sin that does lead to death. So the question that we have to ask quickly here, uh, what is that sin? When we find something that's a, like a hard passage like that, we need to not just ignore it and go to something easier, but try and dig in a bit. So there are three ideas that have perhaps been put forward about what that specific, uh, what that deadly sin is, the sin that leads to death. <clears throat> the first is that it is, is maybe some specific sin. And maybe it's something willful and deliberate, and it would probably obviously be something that is deliberate. And so the, kind of the thought behind that is in Acts chapter 5, uh, we see Ananias and Sapphira come in and willfully and deliberately sin, uh, lie to the apostles and give them a gift and claim it was more than it was, and they died instantly. So maybe it's that. Maybe that's what John's talking about here. The second thing that it might be is a, is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, and this is something we, we read in the Gospels as well, that, that this is maybe an unforgivable sin. We would define that as a deliberate, knowledgeable, willful, verbal, and continual rejection of the truth to which the Spirit bears witness. It's a hardening of heart to a degree that prayer will not help. So maybe that's why we can't pray for or shouldn't pray for because it's this person is so far off that prayer will not even help. But the third option, and maybe where we'll land here this morning, is that this, this sin that leads to death is a total rejection of the gospel and of Christ. Again, this, if taken in the context of 1 John, this is the sin that the false teachers who are in 1 John, spoken of in 1 John, that they have. They are willfully and habitually opposing the witness of God concerning the work of his son, Jesus Christ. D. Edmund Hebert is helpful here. He says, The false teachers manifested the spirit of the Antichrist, those who are Antichrist. They separated themselves from the true church and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ. So they have completely rejected the message of the gospel. So in deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God, in whom eternal life is available, they committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and a course of action that can only be character as, characterized as sin unto death. So if this is correct, John is saying that for those who willfully, resolutely, and irrevocably reject the Bible teaching on Jesus, death and spiritual death is their destiny. That said, this section, the emphasis here is on the power of prayer. One final uh, summation here from Charles Spurgeon, the, the Prince of Preachers. He says this, Might we not win more victories if we more constantly used this weapon of all prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in opportunate supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, 
but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. He says, Resolve to serve the Lord and to be faithful to his cause, for then you may boldly appeal to him. Be sure that you are with God, and then you may be sure that God is with you. We can know that God answers prayer. The next thing, we can know victory over sin. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. This is the final time in John's letter that he addresses the new birth that followers of Jesus have. And so the apostle wants us to be sure that, that we have been born again throughout his letter. And there are no less than 13 evidences, birthmarks, we called them last week as we dug into a few, 13 evidences of new birth in this letter. These are things that we can see. If we see them in us or in people, we can know that, that they are experiencing this new birth. Those who are born of God keep his commands. They walk in the same way that Christ walked. They are lovers and not haters. Those who are born of God love the Father and not the world. They confess the Son and have him. They do what is right. They do not continually practice sin. They have the Holy Spirit. They listen to the Word. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. Those who are born of God overcome the world. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. And those who are born of God know that Jesus protects them from the evil one. That's in our verse right here, verse 18. So verse 18 gives us, again, three powerful assurances that assure us of our victory over sin. Because it often seems, again, maybe it's just me, we can read that, yeah, we have victory over sin, but there's still this little twinge in the back of my hands that, well, maybe not completely. We can know these things. First, the person of God does not keep sinning. And we've talked about this in, in earlier passages. It doesn't mean that as we get this new birth, we magically stop sinning. We're magically healed from sin, but rather, it means that, that sin is no longer the pattern in our life. We're aspiring for purity here, not perfection. We can go back to chapter 3 for a little more on that. The second thing we see in here is the one who is born of God, that's speaking of Jesus, protects him, the one that is born again, that is the follower of Jesus. It's Jesus' work on the cross that has redeemed me. It's Jesus' work on the cross that has brought me back into a relationship with God and has obtained my salvation. And now by Jesus' continuing work in heaven, he maintains my salvation. He protects me. Therefore, the third one we have is that the evil one does not touch him. That's us, the one who is born again. When we read touch here, we need to understand that this is not just a boop. But rather, this is the evil one cannot grab a hold of you with the intent to harm you. Because we are protected by Jesus. Alexander Ramsey says, He, who is, he is well kept whom Christ keeps. The enemy of souls cannot lay hold of him. He assaults, but cannot seize. This we can know, that, that Satan and the world can grab at us and tempt us through things like doubt and friends that leave the faith or idols or fleshly desires or the allure of the world. But, because of the work of Christ, 
He cannot get us. We can know victory over sin. Remember 1 John 4, 4. You are from God and have overcome the world. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In Romans 8, 37. Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The next thing, we can know that we belong to God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies apart, lies in the power of the evil one. Again, I, I appreciate Dan Aiken's words here. He says, in stark contrast to the safety of the believer in Christ, the whole world rests in the power of the evil one. We are safe, but the world is a slave. Believers in Jesus have a certain and settled knowledge that they are God's. Here is confidence and inner assurance that spiritual death has no claim on me. Here is a certainty of the soul that sin cannot dominate me and the evil one cannot harm me. We know that we belong to God. Now, this is an incredible truth for the believer. However, we do not simply celebrate this fact so that we can simply rest assured in the goodness of Jesus. See, because as we read the second part of verse 19, it should break our hearts. We have the good news of the gospel, which is actually the greatest news in the universe. And all around us, there are people caught in the lies and the futility of the world system who are controlled and captivated by the power of the evil one, Satan himself. We need to understand, as followers of Jesus, that John has been saying that there is no neutral ground here. We are either serving the one true God, or we are serving the God of this world. Those who have not yet heard the good news are spending their lives, their one and only lives, chasing after things that ultimately, most likely, in a hundred years from now, will be utterly meaningless. Those and those of us who chase things of the world, we're trying to fill a, a God-shaped hole or a longing in our, in our hearts, in our souls, that the world can never satisfy. The longing can never be totally filled, never be totally filled by career or family or wealth or power or influence or relationships or sex or anything the world has to offer us. All of these things, apart from a relationship with God, are ultimately not satisfying. And that leads us into our last two verses. We can know what is true. Verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, eternal life. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John ends his letter right back where he started it, talking about Jesus. And once again, John affirms the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus came and walked the earth as a human. The Son of God has come, he says. And he affirms that through Jesus, we can know God himself, the one who is true. And because we know Jesus, we can understand the truth of the gospel, that, that the just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 
to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all, all who turn and trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. We can know what is true. However, if there is a true God, then there are also false gods. And this ties in with the last verse of John's letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's telling us to watch out for God substitutes. Paul also warns us similarly in Ephesians 5, 5 and in Colossians 3, 5 to watch out for God substitutes. Benjamin Merkel says this. I think this, we, we need to listen and catch this. Those who claim to be Christians, that might be us, those who claim to be Christians but do not believe the truth concerning Jesus, do not live a righteous life in obeying God's commands, and do not love others are in danger of idol worship. This is an idol because they have created a religion that is false. This is a religion that man has created and not that of the apostolic faith. This is nothing short of idolatry. To embrace a form of Christianity that allows one to deny the truth about Jesus, to not live a godly life, or to not love others, is to create an idol. And this is something that Christians must constantly guard against. John Calvin also said that man's nature... Human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We like to build up things. Tim Keller also helps us out here. He says, The ultimate reason for any sin is that something besides Christ is functioning as an alternative righteousness or source of confidence and is thus an idol, a pseudo-savior, which creates inordinate desires. See, any effort we make Anything, any effort we make to earn our right standing before God creates idols. If we make anything, our career, our grades, our marriage, our family, anything else, our fundamental confidence in life, then those things become idols, which we look to instead of Christ for our salvation. That we look to them and say, hey, look, I've been to church this many times this month. That's pretty good. Hey, look, I've prayed with my kids at meals every meal this month. That's pretty good. Hey, look, I've read my Bible cover to cover my one time my whole life. That's pretty good. All of those things that we try to look at ourselves and say, well, you know, I'm pretty good because of these things. All of them become idols. Because none of them bring us closer to Christ. Christ brings us closer to, closer to Christ. There it is. And so what we've seen in this letter, week after week after week after week, is the assertion that there is only one way to get this eternal life. Which is not just eventual life, but it's the eternal fulfillment in this life and the next. And that is through Jesus, who is the Christ. Therefore, idolatry is anything you love, enjoy, and pursue more than God, more than Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. See, idols say that we are true when God says only Christ is true. Idols say that they will give us life when God says only Christ provides life and eternal life. Idols will promise things, promise fulfillment. doesn't matter if the language of idol is tripping us up, thinking of some carved thing in the bush in Bongo Bongo land. 
You know, our wealth can promise us these things. Our career can promise us these things. Our relationships can promise us these things. Put any other word you want to in here. All of these things promise things but can never deliver. Whereas God says Christ both provides and delivers. So every single day we have to guard ourselves against the idols of power and control and comfort. That's a big one living in Canada is comfort. The idols of approval and position and applause and pleasure. The world promises us fulfillment through all of those things, but we will never be fully satisfied and we will never find rest if any of those things are our greatest desire. We can know what is true, and that is Jesus. Well, family, we made it through a letter verse by verse. So the question is, what do we do now? And I can tell you that my hope is that the past uh, nine-plus hours of preaching have not simply been an academic exercise for us to check off the list. I went to church and heard a preacher. And it hasn't just been some academic exercise where we have learned stuff about the letter of 1 John. But I hope rather that we can conclude this letter with the uttermost confidence that Jesus is the Son of God, the true God, and the only God who gives you an eternal life, and that you can have it with certainty. All that we have to do is believe his name. He and he alone is the true God. All other gods are deceiving counterparts and false substitutes. What they promise they can never provide. Jesus is the true God and the eternal life. On this truth, we can stand and stake our eternal destiny. But more than that, I hope that we allow this message to get right into our hearts. And that now, after hearing these things for 12 weeks, I think, we've been here, we can take this message and take it to the street. We can take it to a world that needs to hear it. See, I'm concerned for me, for me and for us, that we so easily become what James says are hearers of the word, but not doers of the words, and thus deceive ourselves. See, perhaps, again, going back to the idols question, right? Perhaps we end up wearing our church attendance or youth group participation or our Bible reading plan completions as badges of honor and that God's word stops there with us. Oswald Chambers says that hoarding a gift will turn it into spiritual dry rot, just as manna did in the desert. See, if we're more than conquerors, like Romans 8 tells us, which we've concluded our service with more often than not through this series, and probably will again today, (laughs) then we need to take this good news, take these things that we know, these things that we know that we can know, and we have to do something with it. I was challenged through a sermon by Mark Clark this week when he asked, when did Christianity or when did the doctrine of forgiveness or the gospel become, you know what, I'm glad I'm forgiven and now I I get to go to heaven when I die and phew, I don't have to worry about hell, period. I'll move on with my life and everything will be the same. Just some Christianized version of what I already was and what I am determined to remain. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I'm calling you to. Get up and do something. Do something with your forgiveness. Do something with this. Stop being passage. Passage. Stop being passive. 
That makes way more sense. If we're going to embrace Jesus as the Christ, as John tells us to, as Lord and Savior, we have to do something. You don't give someone that title and not listen to what they say. We need to take our freedom from the bondage of sin and proclaim that freedom to the world. We need to do what Jesus said. We need to love God and we need to love our neighbors. So as we transition to the communion table, let me set it up this way. If you've never before submitted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can do that right now. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simple. This is not a hard thing. It's hard to live up to that. But if you've heard us talk about the gospel, if you've heard us talk about Jesus and, and raise the standard of who Jesus is week after week, and if you're willing to believe who Jesus, that Jesus is who he said he is, which we've talked about through the last 12 weeks, then just tell Jesus that. If you're willing to submit, to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus, then you can lay claim to all the promises that we've talked about here today and throughout this letter. And if you want to do that for the first time, I'd love to talk with you, pray with you. If you can do it, figure it out by yourself, that's cool. But I would invite you to share that with someone. Come talk to me after the service. And I would love to pray with you and encourage you. And we're also having a baptism service in a few weeks, May 14th. And I would love for you to be a part of that as well. You see, baptism is publicly identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus and submitting to him as king. We go under the waters to symbolize our death to our worldly self in submission to Christ. And then we come up out of the waters and identify with a new self, the born-again one that we've talked about so many times in this letter. Now also, if, you, if this morning you aren't willing to confess your need for Jesus today, that's okay. This is not a high-pressure sales pitch. But I'd love to talk more with you about your, your hesitations and concerns and to pray with you. And so if you, if you aren't willing to, or if you haven't yet confessed your need for Jesus as Savior, I'd invite you to just let the cup and the bread pass as we do communion. Because these things are some symbols of our submission to Jesus as Lord and Savior. For those of us who have already accepted Jesus as Savior, let's take a couple minutes of silent prayer while the band and the servers come. <clears throat> and just ask God to show us if there are still idols hanging around in our lives. Things that we are putting our trust and our confidence in rather than Jesus. And if, or perhaps when, he shows you something, confess, return to the God who loves you. And then ask God to show you what you need to do with the good news. Who needs to hear it? Who in your sphere of influence, who in your neighborhood, who in your home needs to hear about it? How do you need to become more loving towards God, towards the people in this room we talked about loving the church, and towards the world. So I'll invite the band to come up uh, and perhaps just play some reflective music. And after a few minutes of quiet prayer, uh, I'll close at the communion table. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.